I'm going to insist, and then he's going to say, no, no, no. I'm going to say, some more is that you guys are going to have Well, guys, amongst the postings, one of the uh, interesting questions that several people asked was, um, why aren't there more stories about women dying in this list? Um, and uh, aren't there any more stories in the Bible? I'm not sure whether people were more suspicious about me or more suspicious about the Bible uh, in the uh, list of passages uh, that I'd suggest you, or list of people I suggested you looked at. As far as, I remember, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any stories in the... Uh, New Testament about uh, the deaths of, of about women dying, except some uh, some some of the miracle stories about uh, that kind of thing, uh, and I can only remember one more story in the Old Testament about a woman dying. Why that might be, I'll come to later on, but we'll re I'll read the story about Rachel uh, in Genesis that in Genesis chapter 35. It's um, it's a short story, so as I did with one of the other stories the other week. Uh, I'll read it, um, well, with it, kind of with its introduction, and then we'll have a minute's quiet, and then I'll read it again. Genesis 35, beginning at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob, Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth. And she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Now I've changed my mind. I shall read the, um, the other two passages that refer back to that. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, on the eve of the exile, when 
people from Judah are uh, about to be taken off um, to Babylon in exile. And um, the Lord imagines, as it were, Rachel there in that tomb on the road, um, aware of the way in which her descendants, her children, her descendants are trudging past. Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. And then Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 16, uh, when um, Joseph has been warned by God to take uh, the newborn Jesus and his mother um, to Egypt. And so he is travelling down the same road, but in the opposite direction. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. I'll read just the first, the actual story of Rachel's death again. They journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Reactions to that? What would you put about that on your posting if I thought... I shall include that next... Well, I won't, because this is the last time the course will ever get taught. I told you that, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if only I was going to teach it again, I'd put those passages in, because that would be cool. So, this is your one time in the history of the universe um, to comment. The one time that anybody in the history of this classroom gets the chance to uh, react to those passages. Yeah. Why is it the last time you Oh, because the, the, the programme is being changed. 
and this course isn't in the new program. Um, and, uh, yeah, I wanted to teach this as an, as an elective uh, for anybody, because it's always been weird that there was a course in biblical interpretation for School of Psychology students, and there isn't one for School of Theology students. <laughs> so I thought, as, as a number of theology students have said to me, um, so I thought I would offer it as an elective. Uh, but then the school said, nah, I can't afford it. So um, that's why. Anybody, any comments on Rachel? I thought it might be, I thought somebody might say, it's, de it's in denial. I mean, she's got a right to call him son of my sorrow. Yeah, he was. Um, he's, um, he's, he's refusing to join in the grieving process. Um, and yet, but, but you're right. There's a, there's a, I mean, there's a, there's a way like that of reading it. But also, um, I mean, if poor Benjamin all through his life had been, been, been called Ben only, it would have been tough, really. Um, and so it was nicer, certainly, for him to be called Benjamin, sort of my right hand. Yeah. Mm hmm. As far as naming, I don't know really how that works, but it seems like names had huge significance. Often, yeah. Um, does it dishonor Rachel at all to have her son reading? Well, that's what, that's what I was kind of implying that it's, it's uh, her last dying wish is this name for her son, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, it gets, um, gets changed. That is uh, tough. Um, Rachel was the love of Jacob's life, um, and uh, you remember it was Rachel that he w that he worked fourteen years for. Um, so uh, she was pretty important to him. So he wouldn't have wanted to dishonor her, I guess. I think it, yeah. Um, but that's an interesting other angle on. If there's something complicated going on in this story, as there is in lots of those uh, dying stories that you've looked at. There's a lot. Which is not surprising. I mean, when somebody dies, there's a lot going on between the, the, all the people who are involved. And that's, and, but you're right, that's another facet of uh, what, what, what could be implicit. Okay, let's sing a song that asks for God's presence with us uh, when we are passing amongst other things. Do Lord, oh do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, oh do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Oh do Lord, remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me, oh, do Lord, remember me. When I'm a-dying, do remember me. When I'm a-dying, do remember me. When I'm a-dying, do remember me, oh, do Lord, remember me. 
When this world's on fire, do remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. Oh, do Lord, remember me. Gracious God, we remember Rachel. We remember the people over whom she wept as they trudged off into exile. We remember the babies of Bethlehem who lost, lost their lives when Jesus was born. We thank you that you remember Rachel and Jacob and Benjamin and those exiles and those little children. And we ask you indeed to remember us in our times of trouble and at our death and when the end of all things comes. And grant us this evening to grasp some more of the significance of what the scriptures have to say to us about all that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the first half this evening, I'm going to talk uh, about another aspect of what we mean by the authority of Scripture. Um, it's authority with regard to uh, life. So, um, and the, the way in which I've um, set up the question is uh, how Scripture shapes people's life. Um, some questions I've asked at the beginning, at the top of the page there. Um, what does change people? For instance, do rewards and punishments change people? Well, I assume so, otherwise we wouldn't give you grades and things like that, would we? Or uh, punish you for being absent. Uh, rewards and punishments have a place. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that um, I got stopped by the man for speeding the other week, then I wouldn't have cut my, speeding by just, my speed by just the odd mile or two. Uh, especially at certain times of the day, I don't know, or when I think, I don't know how you know these things. But those things, it makes a difference. What is it that changes people's convictions? Um, I don't think being stopped, being fined for speeding changed my convictions much. Um, rewards and punishments may make you act differently. They don't necessarily make you think differently. Making people act differently is not to be despised, um, but it's not all that you want to do. You want to change the whole person. Uh, and you probably change people's convictions at least as much by stories as by commands. Uh, and that was one of the um, considerations that lay behind my getting you to look at those various varied stories for today. Stories change the way you think. One or two people asked about, um, uh, wanted a more kind of systematic account uh, of what dying was about, what death was about, what eternal life was about. And it would be possible to give that. Uh, it's quite possible to... Um, formulate a biblical theology of what death is about and what eternal life is about. Uh, and that does something. Uh, it's quite possible to describe the kind of things that you ought to do um, in counselling somebody uh, when they're dying or what you ought to do by way of uh, burying somebody in mourning and all those kind of things. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that has a place. Um, but stories, narrative, um, 
is, dominates Scripture as a whole in, in the conviction uh, on the scriptural writers and the Holy Spirit's part, I think, um, that stories change you, um, reach places that mere commands don't reach. Uh, and yet commands have got a place, presumably, apparently. Well, as I've said from personal experience, they do. Um, and to judge from the nature of Scripture, um, commands have a place. Not the final place, not the most important place. Where the Bible starts isn't with commands. Um, and in the nature of the Old Testament story and then the nature of the New Testament story, uh, the framework of those um, works is indeed story. It's telling you about things that God did. Um, within the, it's within the context of that story then that commands are set um, in parts of the Torah uh, like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that tell you lots of things that you're supposed to go and do if you're in Israelite. And also in, within um, Matthew's Gospel it's very clear um, as a whole is set in particular the Sermon on the Mount um, as uh, the life that it's appropriate to live when the story has won you into becoming one of Jesus' disciples. Commands then have got a place. Now the trouble oftentimes with the study of scripture is that the um, problems about understanding the things it says come to dominate us um, as if everything was hard to understand. Uh, a lot uh, of the commands in scripture uh, are indeed tricky to understand. Okay, you're not supposed to cook a, ki a kid goat in its mother's milk. Three times the Pentateuch tells you that, it's obviously really important. It's probably not something you've been tempted um, to do today. Uh, though I suspect it might be rather a nice way to uh, cook a kid goat, if you ever need to cook one, to cook it in milk would probably make it rather flavourful. Um, uh, and, uh, and maybe that's part of the background to why you're told not to do it, because at least a plausible theory is, well, if you're, if you're at the average Israelite household, uh, you've probably only got one or two goats, um, and so it's quite likely that any milk that you cooked a kid in would be its own mother's milk. And there's something hurried about the idea of using uh, that um, substance that's designed to bring life um, as a means uh, in, in connection with, with the death um, of, of that animal, in, the, in connection with cooking it um, after you've killed it. So it's possible to at least to guess at what's the point about that statement, but when you simply see it, don't, kick, don't, kick, don't cook a kid goat in his mother's milk. You go, excuse me? There are quite a number of commands that are difficult to understand. But uh, we shouldn't let those become too dominant because there are quite a lot that are relatively easy to understand. When the Ten Commandments say things like, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, well, it's not so difficult to know whether or not what those constitutes. I mean, there are some... Sometimes you might be not quite sure, but most of the time it's pretty clear what committing adultery is. So let's not exaggerate the difficulty of understanding uh, against the background of needing to talk for quite a while um, about when it's a bit more complex. Uh, one um, aspect of that complexity is that it's easy enough to find uh, points at which different parts of Scripture um, conflict with each other. Um, and the question is, what do you do then? Um, there's a great example uh, in the account of the discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus uh, about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees ask him. 
What did Moses command you? He says, this is Mark chapter 10. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. Well, that fixes it then. You could put on the, on the um, bumper sticker of your camel. Uh, Moses said it. That settles it. I'll do it. Or whatever it is. Jesus said it. What does it say, the bumper sticker? Jesus said it. That, that settles it. No. I believe it. Jesus said it. That, that's it. I believe it. Anyway, there's a bumper sticker along those lines. Uh, and you can imagine, as I say, one appropriate for the Pharisees. Um, they've read the Bible, they know what to do about divorce. But Jesus makes things more complicated. He could have had a job as a professor in a seminary, couldn't he? Uh, but um, he would have been disallowed on lots of other grounds. I mean, he hadn't got a degree to start with, and he was always causing trouble. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. Now I'll remind you of something else that the Bible says. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Genesis 1. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus sets two passages of scripture that the Pharisees haven't noticed are in some tension with each other. Oh, thanks. We thought we, it was simple, and now it turns out to be complicated. <coughs> but then tells you how to relate these two scriptures to each other. Um, that the one about um, a certificate of divorce makes allowance for human hardness of heart. That is, as I think I mentioned last week, that um, God allows for the fact that marriages will go wrong, and God doesn't just say to the world, well, okay, uh, if you don't do what I say uh, with regard, for instance, to lifelong monogamous marriage, when marriages break, break down, you're on your own. Um, God in his mercy in inspires Moses to give a law that's designed to take account of their hardness of heart. So you have two, two levels of things being said there um, in the Torah. One that expresses God's ultimate vision for marriage and one that makes allowance for human hardness of heart. And you need both of those. We need both of those in our own culture uh, with regard to that issue and with regard to um, other issues. So... There's one way that Jesus uh, handles the diversity in Scripture by noticing ways in which they may express God's ideal and God's condescension. Um, here's another in Mark chapter 7. Uh, it's the poor Pharisees again who will never learn the lesson. You'd have thought that they would have learned not to take Jesus on, wouldn't you? But they don't seem to be capable of learning that lesson. Uh, they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples, Mark 7, were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. Now, that's nothing to do with your mother telling you you have to wash your hands before dinner, and neither is it anything to do with avoiding catching swine flu. Uh, it's, uh, it's talking not about regular hand washing, but about a kind of ritual hand washing uh, related to uh, the thing I was talking about the other week, about the, the sense in which the scriptures defile the hands. It's a kind of, paradoxically, a holiness that attaches to the scriptures that means you need to wash your hands to wash, to wash the defilement or the consecration of the scriptures off. It's nothing to do with dirt. It's to do um, with uh, holiness and taboo. Uh, and something similar happens in other areas of life. It's that kind of washing that the Pharisees were, were keen on. Um, uh, Mark comments, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. 
and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. Well, again, it says, doesn't it, don't eat these apples before... Well, it's not that kind of washing. Uh, there are also many other traditions that they observe, observe the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is korban, that is an offering to God. The point about that, it was, it was one of these, like one of these estate planning things whereby you could set up a, a trust uh, that meant that the, um, your uh, belongings no longer belonged to you, they belonged to this trust. Um, that meant, on the one hand, in this kind of case, you could avoid having to waste them, uh, spending them on your parents, uh, but on the other hand, you could still carry on enjoying them, uh, enjoying them yourself. Very clever, eh? They could have been Californians, these guys. Uh, what, what, uh, if anyone tells his father and mother, whatever support you might have had from me is korban, that is an offering to God, then you, you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. And you do many things like this. Uh, here is Jesus questioning uh, traditions that people have added to scripture. They reckoned the Pharisees did, that they were obeying scripture. They hadn't noticed, they didn't realize that in order to try to make sure that they were handling scripture, that they were being obedient to scripture in every detail, um, they hadn't noticed that they were um, missing the point about scripture. Um, but not only that, uh, later on in the chapter, um, the disciples ask him uh, some more and he says, do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? Thus, Mark comments, he declared all foods clean. That was a revolutionary statement. A long time before they saw the implications of that, actually. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And, and thereby he's not merely warning them about taking human traditions too seriously. He is, as Mark comments, ultimately saying that those rules in the Torah themselves uh, don't need to be obeyed anymore. God is now operating a new way. There's a new dispensation come, um, as uh, the Holy Spirit makes clear to Peter uh, in the story about the um, sailcloth that's full of shellfish and whatnot that Peter is told to go and eat in Acts chapter 8 to 11. Um, the time when God is going to keep Israel distinct by having those rules uh, about what you can eat is gone. God is going to abandon those in order that you can reach out. Instead of being distinct in that way, you're going to be able to reach out to other people by not keeping rules like that. So there are some rules of God's that applied um, in uh, Old Testament times that aren't going to apply from now on. Not that they were not God's word before, but they were always less important 
than those other things, those moral requirements. Um, and therefore, though the moral requirements wouldn't be abandoned, those uh, rules uh, about cleanliness and so on can be abandoned. Um, and there's a link between that and the third passage that I've mentioned on the sheet, on the sheet at the end of Mark chapter 2, when uh, on the Sabbath the disciples are plucking heads of grain. And the Pharisees again say, look, what are they doing? What's not lawful? What are they, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then he, gave some, th th then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I link that with the previous passage um, I read, that when Jesus comes, he does new things, for instance, with the Sabbath. That's why uh, I suggested to you when we looked at the Sabbath that the Sabbath doesn't bind us or bind anybody as a law. As an embodiment of some important um, principles about giving time to God and resting and not being workaholic and whatnot, then those principles need to be embodied in our lives. Uh, but the Sabbath is a 24-hour period um, with some strict rules about it. It doesn't work like that anymore because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's another um, passage that I wish I had um, thought to put on this sheet, which I've thought about some more uh, lately, and which I think is, is also helpful for, uh, for understanding uh, the relationship between the various uh, rules that there are um, in, the, uh, in the Torah. Uh, and it's the, it's the story of when... Um, a scribe this time, I think, asks Jesus, what's the most important regulation in the law? Um, uh, it, it was a standard topic of debate, and the kind of, Jesus, the kind of answer that Jesus gives uh, is not different from the answer that other people would have given. Uh, he won't say there's one important, uh, command, most important command in the law, but he will say there are two. He picks out one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, interestingly, he comments, he adds, to, he adds to that, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what that suggests is that when you're wondering about the significance of a particular rule, it's always worth asking the question, how does that either express love for God or express love for one's neighbor? Uh, if it doesn't look as if it does either of those, then ask the question again. Because Jesus says... Well, not only, not, not only all the law, but all the prophets um, are an exposition one way or another of that truth. So, when, when a, a command puzzles you, have a look at whether you can see if you can see how that might be an expression of love for God and how that might be an expression of love for one's neighbour. Jesus then recognises the diversity that there is um, in, within the commands in the Old Testament and isn't phased by them, but offers us some ways of thinking about them. As I've hinted in the way I've talked about Jesus just now, my second kind of bold heading on the sheet there, Jesus is the fulfilment um, of those uh, Old Testament scriptures, the way that they talk about God's commands. Near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. It's a tricky word, fulfill. 
um, we'll be thinking about it again the week after next when for the homework you look at some passages in Matthew where Matthew talks about prophecies being fulfilled and, and when you look at those passages in the prophets in their context uh, back within the Old Testament as I'll ask you to do and then you look at what happens that Matthew says fulfill, fulfills them you may well say again excuse me in what sense are these New Testament passages fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy? Um, and I'll give you a, a hint for now, or a piece of information for now, that might kind of help you. Uh, that we have this technical word, fulfill. The New Testament didn't have a technical word, fulfill, neither does the Old Testament. When the, old, when the New Testament, uh, you, when in Eng the English Bible, uh, you have the word fulfill in the New Testament... More, most often, it's the ordinary, Hebrew, the ordinary Greek word for to fill. So what Jesus actually says here, it more literally, is, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fill. And when Matthew uh, talks about Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, what he actually says is, this, this is the way this prophecy was filled. Well, that's, I find that suggestive when you come to look at what on earth is the understanding of the relationship between the prophecy and its fulfillment or its fullness or something. Then remember that that's actually Matthew's word. Jesus then is the fulfillment or the filling of the Old Testament law. And he is that in various ways. As I've suggested in the line underneath there, sometimes what Jesus does is, is fulfill fill the law by confirming it by saying you know that the law said you should do that you should do it sometimes he fulfills or fills the Old Testament law by embodying it sometimes he does that by broadening it sometimes he does it by extending it sometimes he does it by interpreting it you can see lots of all those going on in the uh, rest of Matthew chapter 5 that that declaration about filling um, the law takes on and uh, gives illustrations of. Jesus says yes and no to the law in a way that I've already suggested. Uh, he's capable of saying, God isn't saying that anymore, or, or at least God, is say, God isn't saying that as something you have to do. Um, it doesn't mean that when, uh, in effect, Jesus abolishes the laws about um, cleanness and uncleanness, that thereby they cease to become part of the word of God. Because you can see the New Testament using those passages to help you understand what Jesus himself was about um, and uh, what the, na the nature of the gospel is and what God does for you. So it's not that he descripturizes them, but they no longer are binding upon people once he's come. Uh, you can see him portraying the difference between what God has to say uh, in the Old Testament and um, in the New Testament in terms of ideal and condescension. So that sometimes God is expressing the kind of things that emerge from creation, God's ideal creation uh, wishes. Uh, sometimes God is condescending to human hardness of heart. Sometimes you can see the Old Testament law as the foundation um, of uh, a, a building, a moral building, um, and the, some things that say that the Sermon on the Mount says um, as the superstructure. Or sometimes you can see 
the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments say, as indicating the boundaries uh, of what are acceptable behaviour. There's no doubt that murder is out and theft is out and adultery is out and so on. When you're beyond there, then you're definitely in foreign territory. But they only mark the boundaries. When you've marked the boundaries, then you can start uh, filling in the, uh, the land itself. Um, one of those images for understanding the relationship between the way that the Torah talks and the way that Jesus talks uh, is more helpful, I suggest, than the image of evolution or progressive revelation, which is an image that people often use. One of the problems with that, with that kind of image uh, is that with evolution or with progressive revelation, then whatever is earlier then um, passes away. You don't need the earlier stage. Uh, and um, Whereas if you ignore the boundary markers or the uh, foundation uh, of what the Torah has got to say, well, if you haven't got boundary markers, then your land may be in trouble. And certainly, if you try to live on the second story of a house when you haven't got a first story, you'll definitely be in trouble, right? Um, and so there's a complementary relationship between the kind of things that the um, Ten Commandments say have got to say and the kind of thing that Jesus has got to say. There are varieties of levels then uh, within the scriptures about uh, in the way that it addresses various topics. And there are various ways, ways of thinking about that, that issue. One of the expressions that people sometimes use is a canon within the canon. Uh, the, the canon of scripture is the scriptures as a whole. Um, but, we, but we all actually work with a canon within the canon. That it, uh, in, in some sense. That is, you've got a favourite book. You've got a book that tends to shape your thinking. And that's your canon within the canon. You've got some principles from Scripture that you take really seriously. That's your canon within the canon. Now, everybody does that. Uh, our, our canons within the canons probably change during our lifetime. Uh, if we're wise, then we recognize that we don't want to get stuck at the canon within the canon. Don't let your canon within the canon become the canon. This could become a very silly sentence in a minute. Uh, Quite often, people do do that, and they do that as a matter of principle. That is, well, well again, Luke, um, uh, Luther did it. I, I said that um, Luther wanted to decanonize, in effect, uh, James and some other books, and he pushed them into a kind of second division category of books at the end um, of the New Testament, just as he also wished to uh, decanonize Esther, in particular, out of the Old Testament. Um, sometimes people do want to make their canon within the canon, which for Luther was Romans, into the actual canon and decanonize the rest. Uh, uh, if you do that, you need to be uh, aware of what you're doing. That is, uh, the, what the, Christian the Jewish community and the Christian community did was say, well, we reckon that this whole canon is the canon. Um, it's probably... Um, a kind of narcissistic idea to decide on your own canon. Um, the, the broader canon inc that includes the things you don't like is really important over against the narrow canon just of things you do like. But by all means operate in a sense with a hermeneutic of suspicion. That is, be prepared to ask hard questions about why the scriptures say things. 
and one of the uh, reasons for that is what I've called in the, in the bottom line there of that series of um, headings, the necessity of compromise, which is a, another way of putting the point uh, about um, hardness of heart. Um, God was driven to, harden, to, to compromise about the, the kind of standards that God expected of people because God knew that it was no good asking, simply asking the ideal of everybody. In particular, the nature of law uh, involves compromise. Law has to stay uh, within reasonable distance uh, of what it's feasible to ask people to do. It's no good the law... Uh, of the state and of the, uh, uh, of the nation being too far ahead of what people will do. Um, it, it can't work then. It becomes dead letter if nobody takes any notice of it. The law has to be some, some kind, within some distance of the kind of um, ethics, standards um, that people will actually keep. Now that's true about secular law, but it's also tr it's true about law as law and therefore it's true about the, the law in the Pentateuch, for instance. Because this is the law in the Pentateuch, it doesn't alter the fact that it's, that it's designed to function as law uh, in the way that other law does, and that that involves compromise. And so it's, quite a, it's, it's a proper thing to do, to ask the sharp question, how is the law compromising here? How is it making allowance for human hearts of heart? Uh, in, in order that you can push yourself and other people nearer God's ideal standard, um, and not just accept the compromising standard when maybe you ought to accept something that's more demanding. Um, I'll stop for a minute, and we could have, you could have some discussion with one another about those questions that I put at the bottom of the sheet there. Um, what is it that makes people do the right thing? Is it commands? Is it stories? Or is it something else? Something else? What is your canon within the canon? And what's your justification for it? What do you do when you think that scripture can't be right? Talk about those with each other for seven or eight minutes, let's say.